Yes, it is. And welcome back as we head into hour two. It is a delight to welcome to the show, I think for the first time, although I have known this uh, young man for many, many years and have uh, uh, dealt with him on a lot of different issues. It is a delight and privilege to welcome to the show Ryan Bullock. He is a, a student at ASU and, among other things, the president of ASU Young Americans for Liberty. He's been uh, tweeting and talking a lot about the goings-on at Arizona State University, particularly in relation to some of what we have been reading about with regard to Kyle Rittenhouse. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. You betcha. As I always do with first-time guests, I ask them to tell tell the audience a little bit about themselves. Uh, feel free to say uh, whatever you like, a little autobiography if you wish, or what you're doing, at, what you're up to at ASU. Yeah, of course. Um, I'm a second-year student at ASU. I'm studying mechanical engineering. Uh, <laughs> you caught me in the middle of finals week. and glad that, or week before finals week, I'm glad we uh, were able to make this work. Don't you dare uh, let all, don't you dare <laughs> let uh, schoolwork get in the way of your education, Ryan. Don't you dare. <laughs> yeah. Hey, not all of us have the luxury to I go out it. and protest the week before. I, yeah finals right yeah (laughs) (laughs) well it was a protest you didn't ask for right it was uh talk to me about this what went down yesterday at asu so there there's a handful of clubs here at asu uh definitely very far far left-leaning uh clubs uh students for socialism is definitely the big one um and they do not believe that Kyle Rittenhouse should be allowed to be a student at ASU. Uh, so that was their that was their uh, main call to protest yesterday with a couple other equally as absurd demands. Um, and they essentially gathered to protest Kyle being a student here at ASU. Their complaint, their chief complaint, is what that why 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 of all the three hundred and thirty one million Americans, this man is not this man Kyle Rittenhouse does not deserve to go to ASU. What is their chief complaint? I believe they called the protest "Get this killer off our campus." So mm. they believe that they are labeling him a murderer, they are labeling him a killer, and they do not believe that he should be allowed to be a part of our student body. I see that on some of the pictures that are posted from the lead group you mentioned, Students for Socialism at ASU, they also believe him to be a white supremacist. Uh, yep, that that seems to be what they are classifying him as. They, they also have classified him as a fascist, as they have with uh, many other right-leaning students here on campus. It was actually kind of funny, if you scroll down on their Twitter a bit, they made a list of what they called all the fascist clubs here on campus. Did you uh, make it? Did you get that badge of honor? Yeah, believe it or not, they (laughs) put Young Americans for Liberty uh, on their list of fascist clubs, which I thought was absolutely hilarious because I I view Liberty as the opposite of authoritarianism. So I thought that was pretty hilarious. You know, you said something interesting. You said that Students for Socialism and their affiliated groups don't believe Kyle Rittenhouse has a right to be at ASU. I'm not sure that they believe ASU has a right to exist. If you go to the Twitter page at Students for Socialism, uh, it, it's pretty clear what they believe in. They say in their identifying, uh, you know, in their identifying uh, biography on their Twitter account, they say Students for Socialism at Arizona State University is a socialist revolutionary Marxist club. Our mission is to end capitalism and fight for socialism. 
Revolutionary Marxist Club. Now, what's interesting to me about that, Ryan, is um, the revolutionary Marxist part that they say they are. Um, it's perfectly fine for revolutionary Marxists to be at ASU, evidently, but not fascists. That's one problem. The other problem is I don't know that in everything, anything I've seen from Kyle Rittenhouse, there's any evidence of fascism. I do see that there is evidence for SFS to be revolutionarily Marxist because they tell us they are. Isn't that kind of an irony? Oh, there, there definitely is an irony. I actually saw one of their uh, leading members of the Student for Socialism Club the other day on Twitter uh, trying to, I think she was trying to raise money for a new MacBook, which I thought was pretty funny. Mm-hmm. These revolutionary Marxists trying to topple capitalism. Are these the same organizations that were involved with that uh, dispute? I actually call it a racial assault that took place at the Temporary Multiculturalism Center. Is this is this part of the same group, or is this a separate separate series of entities? Uh, these are definitely the same group. Uh, you you would think that uh, because these incidents have been happening so frequently uh, that there are a lot of them, but there's there's probably only a couple dozen of these students. Uh, they're super super small portion of our student body. They're definitely in the minority of the belief here at ASU, I believe, uh, but they are an extremely loud minority. They're the same ones that are responsible for the multicultural room incident. They're the same kind of students that chased Senator Cinema into the bathroom last month, and now they're leading these protests here against Tyler Rittenhouse. How much freedom do you, I mean, it's it's wonderful that you can join us on this show, and it's wonderful you can have your Twitter account. How, feel, how free do you feel at ASU to express your opinions, I suppose, in a serious um, uh, serious uh, set of coursework in, 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 in mechanical and hard sciences that you probably don't have as much opportunity to speak politically, but how free is ASU, would you say? Uh ASU definitely does like to pride itself as uh, really protecting First Amendment rights. Um, they're really big on free speech. Uh, so I, ha- I personally haven't run into too many issues. Uh, the university is never giving me issues for anything that I have said online. Uh, it's groups like these, though, that will try to, I guess for lack of better terms, try to cancel you for things that you say online. Uh, we have uh, undergraduate student government here, and five of my friends and I ran for uh, Senate in our respective colleges uh, last semester, and they, were, they made, like, smear uh, social media accounts uh, dragging all of us just for our beliefs um, to try to do everything they could do to prevent us from being elected to these uh, student body government positions. So I would say the university does a good job um i haven't really been penalized for anything i've said by the university it's more other students will be somewhat militant and i imagine if kyle rittenhouse were to set foot on the university it would change things dramatically i would imagine oh yeah because he's he's getting this kind of attention and he's been an online student so far yeah all this attention for someone who hasn't even for as far as we know hasn't even set foot in the state of arizona as far as we know right yeah, definitely. 
Ryan, talk to me about the hope here, um, the ultimate hope that so many of us have. I, I, I love the idea that you're the president of an organization called Young Americans for Liberty. It reminds me a little bit of similarly named organizations that were hugely important to the modern conservative movement that were formed in the late 50s and early 60s. Tell me a little bit about Young Americans for Liberty. Uh, so we we try not to tie ourselves down to a specific party affiliation. Uh, we're just a group of students that are strong advocates for liberty. Um, I, I actually, uh, our executive board consists of Republicans, independents, and we also actually have at least one Democrat on our executive board. Uh, and sure, when you get down to the nitty-gritty of issues, um, we all have some minor disagreements, but we all kind of come together uh, to rally behind uh, principles of liberty and limited government. It's interesting you you make that point about uh, slightly different politics and political beliefs. I was I was attracted to one of your tweets yesterday about the rallies uh, for on behalf of and against Kyle Rittenhouse. You had made the point that it's important that when you involve yourself in a cause, you don't tie yourself to a political candidate, right? That was something Kyle said. That was something you wanted to to, to share as well. If I if I read you right on Twitter, yeah, I'm I'm not going to call out any names. Sure. Uh, I didn't call out any names in my tweet. I simply posted a Twitter uh, posted a picture on Twitter of what I, what people saw at the protest. Uh, a governor's candidate put out campaign signs for their own campaign, uh, and I thought that was kind of drawn, trying to take away some from a, some attention from what the pro, the counter protests were about because the counter-protests were there to support Kyle being a student here, and it seemed like some candidates were putting up their campaign signs and making it a little bit about, a little bit about them. Um, and Kyle Rittenhouse, I'm not sure exactly where he said it, but recently I did see he uh, is very unhappy with politicians that have used his name for fundraising purposes or any kind of political clout. I was proud of you for saying it because it does diminish from the cause whenever some politician, whoever they are, whatever cause, tries to tries to you know arrogate the uh, arrogate the publicity and the issue to their own uh, candidacy. Uh, so of course it vitiates and it weakens the effort that's taking place for the cause. So I, I'm with you on that, and I think it's important too maybe as you as you're building uh, student organizations like uh, like yours for liberty um, Ryan that you know it's not tied to specific candidates it's tied to a cause that's the important thing here isn't it absolutely uh, principles always come first principles over party uh, principles over politicians uh, I think it's really important to call out even people you consider your allies when you think they are wrong Ryan Bullock, I wanted in the middle of obviously a, a heavy, heavy study load and, and, and exams and all that. I wanted to especially thank you for giving us just a little bit of time, but I wanted to uh, promote your organization, of course, ASUA Liberty at ASUA Liberty for ASU Young Americans for Liberty. People can follow you on Twitter, Ryan Bullock. And uh, thank you for doing what you're doing over there and, 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 and keeping the campus sane and importantly, free. Thank you very much, Ryan. Thanks for having me. You betcha. Bless you, and good luck on those exams. And yes, also, 
Don't let schoolwork get in the way of your education. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. Your show here on out. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Jason Riley at the Wall Street Journal has an interesting thesis on the times we live in. Uh, Waukesha killings make the media colorblind again. He writes, in the aftermath of George Floyd's death last year, employers offered black workers time off to deal with the news. UCLA suspended a professor who refused to grade his supposedly traumatized black students more leniently than their non-black peers. Such gestures may have been well-meaning, but they were also nonsensical and reeked of condescension. Are black psyches really that fragile? And are blacks so starved for exemplars that miscreants must be treated like martyrs? Should Floyd's death matter more to them than the huge number of black homicides that don't involve police? And why would people who aren't black be any less disturbed by a video showing a police officer kneeling on the neck of a defenseless suspect for nine minutes? Great questions. The protests that followed Floyd's death rested on two assumptions. The first is that Floyd, a career criminal and drug addict, was somehow representative of black America, which is not only false, but deeply insulting. The second is that police acted out of racial animus, which was never a part of the case against those responsible or held responsible for the death of George Floyd. This is what happens when racial identity becomes the centerpiece of politics and public life in a multiracial society. The political left often pretends to pine for a post-racial America, but that's the last thing it actually or really wants. I recall a guy who ran for president a little while back after talking about how there's no black America or white America or Asian America, just a United States of America. And then he became president and stopped talking like that. Instead, he started talking about racist policing and black voter suppression, and he embraced divisive racial provocateurs like Al Sharpton. All the colorblind talk went out the window. I'd like to interrupt the op-ed to also point out that it was after that presidency was over, we also learned of meetings with and photos taken with Louis Farrakhan, simply suppressed during the tenure of that man's presidency. People who are interested, Jason Riley writes, in a post-racial America don't name their organization Black Lives Matter or welcome racial propaganda like the 1619 Project into elementary schools. They don't advocate racial preferences in college admissions or racial quotas in hiring. And they don't call for white people who were never slaveholders to pay reparations to black people who were never slaves. The Biden administration has picked up, however, where that President Obama we were talking about left off. The unwarranted racialization of of the Kyle Rittenhouse saga, which concerned one white man who shot three other white men, was a clumsy attempt by President Biden and his allies to further a narrative about bias in the criminal justice system. To their credit, jurors stuck to the facts of the case, and Mr. Rittenhouse was acquitted. 
But liberals and their friends in the media are playing a dangerous game when they selectively invoke race to advance a political agenda. Let me also pause again here on this op-ed by Jason Riley to ask this question, rhetorical, I think. But how many Americans actually think Kyle Rettenhouse shot black people? Why else would they call him a white supremacist? Well, let me help you out, folks. He only shot, according to the jury in self-defense, but according, according to every fact of history and genealogy, he only shot three other men of the same race as he was, white. No blacks were shot. The same press outlet that portrayed Mr. Rittenhouse as a white supremacist, outlets, that portrayed Mr. Rittenhouse as a white supremacist have had remarkably little to say about the racial identity of Daryl Brooks, the black suspect in Wisconsin who was accused of plowing his car through an annual Christmas parade last month and killing six people, including an eight-year-old boy, all of whom were white. Given the suspect's history of posting messages on social media that called for violence against white people and praised Hitler for killing Jews— You'd think that his race and the race of his victims would actually be relevant to reporters. Race is all anyone would be talking about if a white man had slammed his vehicle into a parade full of black people. Yet suddenly the left has gone, wait for it, colorblind. Liberals want us to believe that racial disparities in police shootings and incarceration rates stem from a bias system and have little to do with racial disparities in criminality. They want to talk about so-called hate crimes that involve white assailants and black victims, but not those involving black assailants and white or Asian victims. They want headlines to read, white cop shoots black suspect, even when there's no evidence that the encounter was racially motivated. This is playing with fire. Once we go down this road and get into the habit of racializing such events, we may not be able to contain the racialization, said Brown University professor Glenn Lurie in a recent speech. Soon enough, he said, we may find ourselves in a world of instances where black thugs killing white citizens come to be seen through a racial lens as well. This is a world no thoughtful person should welcome since there are a great many such instances. The political left's hyper-consciousness about race might help Democrats turn out their base but at a steep cost. National cohesion in a country as large and ethnically diverse as this one has always depended on our ability to focus not on our superficial differences, but instead on what unites us as Americans. The sooner we start choosing political leaders who understand this and punishing the ones who don't, the better off we'll be. Let's wager how long you think uh, the media will be colorblind in its reporting on crime. Do you think Waukesha was a one-off, or do you think they have become woke in their own sense to Martin Luther King's principles? I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. This Alec Baldwin story I was telling you a little bit about yesterday. He's going to have an interview airing 
with uh, George uh, Stephanopoulos, where he claims he didn't um, he's claiming he didn't pull the trigger. I, I really am looking forward to seeing that um, that full interview because I want to see how George Stephanopoulos follows up on that question. We talked a lot about this yesterday, but I was doing after the show. Something just didn't sit right with me after the show yesterday, and I I was I was thinking if he didn't pull the trigger on this gun, as I understand it, it's a single action gun. It requires actually two efforts. It's the hammer and then the trigger. And he shouldn't have probably, if he wasn't intending to shoot at all, even have had his finger resting on the trigger. But he's now claiming he didn't pull it. He's saying, I literally, quote, I didn't pull the trigger. I would never point a gun at someone and pull the trigger on them. Never. The trigger wasn't pulled. Media are going to have to do their own work on this, I suppose. But it won't be hard. It won't be hard. I'm looking at an October 23 story from National Public Radio, NPR. So just a little over a month ago. And I'll just, I'll just read it to you. As a film crew and actors in Western Garb prepared to rehearse a scene inside a wooden chapel-like building on a desert movie ranch outside Santa Fe, assistant director Dave Hall stepped outside and grabbed a prop gun off a cart. He walked back in and handed it to the film's star, Alec Baldwin, assuring him it was safe to use because it didn't have live ammo. Cold gun, Halls yelled. It wasn't. According to court records made public Friday. Instead, when Baldwin pulled the trigger Thursday, he killed cinematographer Halnya Hutchins and wounded director Joel Souza, who was standing behind her. The stories were that he pulled the trigger. Is there anyone until yesterday who didn't think he pulled the trigger? Go back and do the story. It's not that hard. You don't even need Nexus and Lexus. Now, you don't even need <coughs> research that goes back farther <coughs> Excuse me, than a day. Newsweek is, report, Newsweek is report, reporting that prop, a prop gun expert has refuted Alec Baldwin's claim that he never pulled the trigger. Uh, the, tr- uh, the, the expert says that firearms are 100% safe. It's just the people that are, are in charge of them, and in this case, it can only go off if you squeeze the trigger. That's a Colt 1880-type firearm. You have to squeeze the trigger right. He added, in rehearsals, your finger is outside the trigger guard at all times, and then when it's loaded, you really put your finger inside the guard to squeeze the trigger, and then you have the target in front of you, which is not a person. Howell said that even a a blank round fired at a person can do serious damage. But uh, this expert, prop gun expert, uh, says that only Alec Baldwin could have pulled the trigger for that gun to have gone off. If there is some exculpatory or other explanation as to how this eventuated and how this took place, I can't wait to hear George Stephanopoulos with the follow-up question. I wonder, too, how quickly the media is just going to drop it. 
Will they let Alec Baldwin have the last word? I heard someone on some other show the other day. It's kind of interesting. Who put this? Whoever did, they, they said it well. I just don't remember. They were making the point that isn't it interesting that Alec Baldwin, before any trial, before any charges, before any legal proceedings against him took place, has already scored an interview on ABC News with George Stephanopoulos that is friendly to him and has turned him, Alec Baldwin, into the victim. Isn't it interesting? They do that with Kyle Rittenhouse before he was charged with anything? Did they do that with him during the trial, with his lawyers even? And did they do it with him after? No. 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 The man who was exonerated for engaging in self-defense by a jury in a full-on legal proceeding that took place before everyone's eyes is shunned and deemed a white supremacist and a fascist. I don't know where he goes to get his good name back. Alec Baldwin is the victim and the hero. Okay. Just so you know the world we live in. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Uh, if you were on hold and hung up, call back. I was just about to go to calls, but that's okay. I can do this as well uh, because it, I, I had it to cover. Joe Biden um, today, December 2nd, gave us uh, a new series of um, COVID plans. President Joe Biden said Thursday is planned to fight COVID during the winter doesn't include shutdowns or lockdowns. Well, it's an interesting thing that there's already a travel ban that can only come from the federal government and that it was never really within the president's constitutional purview to engage in shutdowns or lockdowns. Has he lifted all mandates for vaccines? Has he lifted those or is he waiting for the pending outcome of the court cases he unleashed against himself by acting extra constitutionally. Um, what's interesting to me about this is I don't know what the administration is up to right now. Let me give you the story from CNBC. President Joe Biden on Thursday said his plan to fight COVID during the winter months will not include new lockdowns or an expansion of the administration's current vaccination requirements. He, he said, while my existing federal vaccination requirements are being reviewed, this plan does not expand or add to those mandates. Of course not, because they have been stopped by the courts. They have been stopped. Uh, the administration hopes to increase the number of Americans who have received booster shots by expanding outreach. Hmm. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services will contact the more than 60 million people who are on Medicare, mostly seniors, to remind them to get an additional shot. The White House plan comes after two cases of the highly mutated Omicron variant were detected. There's now three. Health officials in the U.S. and around the world are concerned that the variant, which has some 50 mutations, could prove more transmissible and evade protection from vaccines to some degree. To some degree, we have three cases. 100% of them were in the fully vaccinated and boosted. 
some degree. So what is it that this administration is doing? Can it withhold funds from hospitals under Medicare and Medicaid, which is where the hospitals get the bulk of their money, if they don't have their employees vaccinated? You bet. Already getting reports from doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers that that's exactly what's taking place at their hospitals, either the threat or the fear of deprivation of reimbursement unless they institute mandated vaccinations. So you tell me, you tell me, all you Democrats or leftists or unhappy Republicans who voted for Joe Biden, when he said and promised in the campaign that he was not going to shut down the country, he was going to shut down the virus, how well he's done. He said in the debate that any president who loses 220 million Americans on their watch should not be president. He said that was the most important takeaway from the debate. I don't need the audio on that. That's okay. What did I say? What did I say? Oh, way wrong. 220,000. Maybe we do need the audio. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good correction, though. Thank you. He said Joe Biden said any president who lost 220,000 on his watch should not be president. Play the audio. Go ahead. 220,000 Americans dead. You hear nothing else I say tonight. Hear this. Anyone who's responsible for not taking control, in fact, not saying I'm I take no responsibility initially. Anyone who's responsible for that many deaths should not remain as president of the United States of America. Any president responsible for that many deaths should not remain as the president of the United States of America. What's the last thing Joe Biden said today in his COVID statement? Quote, we are in a better position than we were a year ago to fight COVID. Are we? Are we? We had a year's worth of experience with it. We developed the vaccine. Joe Biden became president. And it's now almost twice the number of deaths on his watch. As to what he said was the number, the threshold number, which should make you ineligible or fit, unfit to be president. 400,000. 400,000 under Joe Biden. When he said it, it was 220,000, 400,000 on Joe Biden's watch and counting. Why does he think we're in a better position than we were a year ago to fight COVID-19? And with 50 variants of this virus, how many times are we going to go through this? Megan McCain had a tweet yesterday saying, let me just save everyone some time here. Can the administration just put out a statement that until Joe Biden is no longer president, we are going to be subject to all kinds of whiplash about all kinds of versions of COVID, subjecting us to all kinds of regulations. Deal with it. She's right. That's right. She meant it sarcastically. She's absolutely right. 50 variants? Are we going to go through this every time we get a patient zero on one of these variants? Is that what we're going to go through? I already know of people canceling travel plans. I already know of people changing Christmas plans. I already know of people changing plans for next week because of what has been said to them about Omicron, what they believe about Omicron. It is easy 
to get Americans to overreact. It's very easy. The left knows this. They've done it in every political campaign. You think about it. You think about what they said about Barry Goldwater. You think about what they said about Ronald Reagan. You think about what they said about Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan throwing grandma off the cliff. This is what they do. Fear and surprise. It is an unhealthy thing for a polity or really any organization, be it a family or a political institution or a country. It is an unhealthy thing for them to live in continued panic and fear. That is the road. That is the recipe. That is the benchmark and starting point of almost every tyrant. Making scapegoats of people and putting the population in unnecessary, undue, propagandized, demagogic fear and panic. I beg of you. I beg of you. Don't submit to it. Don't give in. America is not a sick country. The L.A. Times wrote an editorial in 1968, and it went across the country like, um, like fire on dry grass, that America was a sick country. It's not. It wasn't then. It isn't now. Don't give in. Do you sometimes wonder if um, we've been invaded by body snatchers and brain snatchers that have either taken our brains or injected us with something that just lowers our IQ by 100 points or something? <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg on The View went off on the abortion argument in front of the Supreme Court yesterday as a problem for men. Do you men have any eggs or the possibility of carrying a fetus, she said. This is part and parcel of the old argument that men shouldn't even talk about abortion. I thought that went out the window once we learned that men could menstruate and give birth. It sounds like they have to go outside, get their stories straight, and come back, don't they? But there's a more important point here. There's a more important principle here. If men have no... I don't know, ability or right or what, credibility to talk about this issue, then Roe versus Wade disappears. That 1973 case that was decided by a 7-2 to two vote, well, those weren't women on the Supreme Court in 1973. Go back outside Get your brains and come back in, or at least get your story straight, because it's an insult to those of us who haven't had our IQ zapped just yet. Mike is in Carefree. Hi, Mike. Hi, Seth. I, I, I'm just a little annoyed at how they're addressing the variants and so forth and saying you just need to get a booster. You know, in, in medicine, if you have an organism and let's say the organism is initially sensitive to penicillin or, for example, the polio vaccine. Initially, it was sensitive to the single valent salt vaccine. And you get resistance. You don't give more of the same because it doesn't work. Right. It's like taking a piece of drywall and trying to put it up into a stud. 
and you put the screw in and you miss the stud, so you put five more screws yeah, in and right. the stud thinks that something is helping. Right. What, what they this is my point is about develop. focusing on the thing that doesn't work, thinking you're focusing on the thing that does when, when you aren't. Yeah, right. Exactly. They need to go to polyvalent vaccines like they did with the Salk vaccine. Jonas Salk broke the back of polio with a 70% effective uh, vaccine that was monovalent. And six years later, the Russians uh, finished it off with a tetravalent sugar cube, which, is, which, had, which took out all four strains of known significant polio. I mean, unfortunately, it's just not a simple answer that you can just say, well, hit it with a hammer a couple more times right. and that'll work. That's right. That's right. I mean, I'm. thank you for that, Mike. I, I appreciate that because, I mean, it's not as if we don't have the evidence before our very eyes. Why are we redoubling down? That's the right word for it. Redoubling down on the things that have proven not to work. Who has the highest level of cases, active cases right now? Who has the highest level of new cases right now? Is it Florida or is it Wisconsin? It's Wisconsin. Who has the lowest? Florida. 